Hello, this is Professor Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is a lot of fact. Today we are talking law school skills. I speak with Professor Chris Franklin, Professor of Law, Director of Academic Initiatives, and Co-Director of the Initiative for Excellence in Law Teaching at New York Law School. Professor Franklin and I discuss how to prepare for law school, how to prepare for law school exams, and most importantly, how to think about being a law student, particularly in your first year of law school. All right, so the reason why I wanted to speak with you is because you really are the premier, to me, one of the premier teachers of how to learn the law. Wow, the thank academy. you. Well, That's incredibly that. flattering. I do think that. I do, absolutely do. So you are. I mean, you are. So one of the things, um, a lot of these podcasts are about learning different topics, but none of them talk about how to learn the law for law school classes and this idea that, and I like to say getting out of your undergrad head, that you're not just kind of learning it to give back to the professor what the professor wants. I don't know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would start by saying that I think that the entire first year of law school, but especially the first semester of law school, feel to most students like a giant bait and switch. Interesting. They quite reason. I mean, they get told at the beginning mm-hmm. that they should put usually the formulas three hours of outside preparation for every hour inside. Right. The first month or so, it actually takes that long. Right. Because they don't know how to read cases. They're told to brief the cases. They're told you may not come to class unprepared. Naturally, they think that that's what it's about. And if they learn to do that work well, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Well, there's a couple problems with that. Number one is the fact that within, depends on the student, it depends on the class, obviously, but usually within somewhere around the first three to six weeks, they start getting better at it. Mm -hmm. And they start getting faster at it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the reading load picks up, but sometimes it doesn't, Mm -hmm. which means it makes that whole three hours outside of class for every one hour inside of class seem like one of those mom lectures that you're not really (laughs) supposed to listen to. Interesting. And we mean it. But what we mean is, as soon as you get faster about preparing for class, all of the rest of that time is supposed to go into reviewing and studying the material that you covered in class. And somehow we don't communicate that to, stu- to so, students. All right, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and you know what? I'm guilty of not communicating that. So you're right. You have to make. You still need the three hours outside of class. You just need to spend them differently once you master the skill of briefing. Absolutely, and that part's more important, especially because. Let's be honest. It's almost never true that the cases matter. That's true. And the students, rightfully, when they're told to spend hours obsessing over this, and when they get grilled on the details of it in class, don't know that. They, learning how to read the cases matters mm-hmm. enormously. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't know how to read the cases, you can't do anything else in law. Learning how to apply the, what you get from the cases to new fact patterns, which is sort of what classic Socratic dialogue is about, matters enormously. So I'm just going to interrupt you because I understand what you're saying, and it, it, you're absolutely right. What the students think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you have to memorize each case because somewhere along the way a professor is going to ask you if it was Betty's dog that actually bit the neighbor or some whatever fact pattern is in there. But that's not actually an accurate statement. The reason that cases matter is because they're the vehicle to get you to think differently. They're the vehicle to use as the precedent when the professor throws out the hypothetical. So the cases matter, but what happens in each case... You know how I would put it? I, I, yeah. build, I build furniture. 
I, I would say that the cases are tools. And there are some woodworkers who are super obsessive about lovingly appreciating the glory that is their tools. Okay. You know what? I'm more interested in what you can make out of it. Oh, interesting. Because that if you it doesn't matter what tools you have if you can't produce anything, mm-hmm. right? That's the same thing that's true of our cases. We're not we tell students this. I mean, we are pretty good about saying we're not going to test you in the cases. Or case names. You know, or case names. You know, a lot of people will say case names. And we should carve out an exception here for everything that I'm saying with respect to con law. Because <laughs> con law yes. is different. And there's a lot of, I think, con law exceptionalism in how people should think about mm-hmm. foundational courses in law school. But the reason I'm saying that is not just for that, just because of that, but because... The attention, particularly at the beginning, on learning how to read those cases carefully, learning how to brief them, getting asked questions about them in class, being able to apply them to hypotheticals, necessarily leads students to believe, even if you tell them don't memorize the case names and we don't need to know the cases in the end, they still believe that if they keep doing that work and they keep doing it diligently and they keep doing it well, that they are studying for what we want them to do, and they're simply not. They're, not, they're preparing for a different sport than the one they're competing in. So, so I call that undergrad head. Yeah, but I think that undergrad head, uh, first of all, I, the one reason I think that that's a little confusing to students is one ish difference about undergrad head is, quite honestly, many bright students can get through lots of undergrad experience not doing that. Okay, fair And enough. so they already right. feel like they're doing something enormously different from college, okay. and they think that that's what we want. Mm-hmm. Great, they're working really hard. But bottom line, if they're not taking that information, if they're not taking what are probably somewhat gibberish class notes and distilling what they needed from the cases and doing what educational theorists call useful forgetting, which I love as a phrase because when I say it to students, without the ed theory, they still understand exactly what that means, which is deciding strategically what it is that you no longer need to know so that you can create the room for the things that you do need to know. What's that called again? Useful forgetting. I love that. And so you put that, you know, together with saying, say, so now my three hours, if I can get prepared for class in an hour and a half or two hours, great. Now I get an hour and a half to spend my time going back over what I did in class, figuring out what my notes meant and making sort of side notes about them because chances are whatever I wrote yes. didn't make sense. Um, figuring out what parts did the professor focus on in the reading and why, and what parts weren't important, or didn't get asked about in class, which maybe means that they weren't important or means that they were important, but the professor assumed were so straightforward that she didn't mm-hmm. need to cover them. Mm-hmm. And what's the difference? Mm-hmm. And how does this material relate to the stuff we were covering last week? Oh, and by the way, I should probably review the stuff that I was covering last week because another thing that we know from ed theory is spaced repetition makes people retain information. So coming back to things that you, were, that you learned before is really important. And chances are it's related to what you were covering well, I now. I was going to say that. I mean, that's the whole thing. When you teach some of these courses, they build upon each other, particularly in contracts. I mean, yeah. I say I call it the story of a contract because you need to know offer and acceptance and consideration. You can't understand frustration or purpose until you understand offer and acceptance. And, well, contracts is an interesting example. I'll, I'll talk, if you'd like me to, about what I think are differences in different first-year yeah. courses. But one of the things that I think is particularly unique about contracts, and the reason that what we're talking about is especially important in that subject, is that it's really common for people to start contracts courses in all sorts of different places. Some oh, people start true. with damages, consideration. Yeah. Some people start with damages. Yeah. There are whole case books that do that. Some start with offer and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Or, and when I teach contracts, I teach it as mutual assent, but same right. thing. But 
it doesn't matter where the professor or the textbook starts. You still have to analyze a problem in the same way. Mm-hmm. Is there contract formation? If there's contract formation, is there breach? Is there breach? Does anybody have any defenses? If, they're, if, they, if the defenses aren't complete, what kind of remedies are available? Right. By the way, if there isn't contract formation, is there anything equitable <laughs> that we can do here? That's yeah. sort of all of contracts, mm-hmm. right? So it doesn't actually matter where you start. I think it's a really good example for students to see that if your professor started with damages, you know, or breach or something, there was a good reason for that. Right. And that's telling you something about how to understand the material. But it doesn't change the fact that you've got to approach it in this methodical way, no matter what, no matter what order you learn it in. And if you don't try putting that together over the course of the semester, boy, you're asking yourself to do an awful lot at the end. And you can't, I mean, don't you think it's true? You can't cram for a law school exam. I mean, you can cram the law for a law school exam, but you can't cram the idea of thinking like a lawyer. Well, that's and that's actually, that gets us back to why do I think, why am I saying it's a bait and switch? And it's because, part of of it is, I think, about these study methods, but I think it's really about the fact that students don't grasp right away that they're, the only reason to learn this stuff is to figure out what to do with it. And if you're not spending the entire semester figuring out what to do with it, you are not training for the sport you're competing in. That is the most important thing, and brilliantly said, is that, and I I think I'm guilty of not teaching students, you're right, it's not just teaching them what it is, teaching them what what to do, and it's so intuitive to me that I'm teaching them what to do it with. You know, I can say precedent all my life, but they don't get it. No, they don't get it. And, you know, and why should and they? Yeah, exactly. If, if they're new so. at this, I mean, first of all, it's not as if there isn't some value. You know, if I'm going to extend my sports metaphor till it gets stupid, you know, there's just the simple fact that cross-training is valuable, right? right. <laughs> but at the same time, what we don't want is for students to not understand that ultimately the cases were just examples, and that's true of almost every first-year course. Let's carve out con law. I mean, you know, there's a half a dozen cases in civil procedure that matter for their own sake. Mm-hmm. And you know that because everybody talks about it by citing the case rather than mentioning anything else. Right. There's maybe a few in torts, you know, a couple. There's Paul's graph, Paul's there's Wagon Round. But other than that, virtually every case that students are reading are, are, are examples. And we should be teaching students from the very beginning in law school to decide from the outset when they're reading the material, is this case a leading case or an example? If it's a leading case, I'm going to need to care about it later. If it's an example, my only job is to figure out what I'm supposed to get out of this case. Hmm. And once I've got that, to focus on that, which is probably some version of a rule or a counter rule, a current or an old uh, way of applying the rule, a unique set of facts that just happen to be interesting, in which case, well, that was for, you know, general engagement, but it doesn't matter. All I'm supposed to do is learn how to apply this rule. You know what I'm thinking as you're speaking? I just had an aha moment. If you look at any torts book, it pretty much has different cases. I mean, yes, it has Paul's Griffin, it has um, Carol Toey, right? But really, they use different cases to illustrate. Of course they do. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's something about the fact that if we can teach this using all different cases, then that by definition says the cases are there as examples. They are not there as leading cases. And if they're not leading cases, there's not a reason why we need to retain the cases themselves. And I think that we need to be helping students understand that so they know what to do with this material. Mm -hmm. Yes, you need to know how to read a case. You need to know how to brief it. But you also need to know how to get from it what you need and then let it go. Right. And we don't teach that skill enough. And law classes aren't designed 
to show students accept indirectly which parts to focus on and which parts to let go. That's so true. no wonder they are confused about that. That's true. That's true. It's funny. I sing Frozen, Let It Go all the time in class. I do. <laughs> I really do. Tell me a little bit about your feelings about the different classes that one else taking and, and how they relate or don't relate, or, or what's your perspective of that? Um, I think that one of the worst things that I hear students say, and virtually every student that I know and love says it, mm-hmm. um, even the most successful, but I think one of the most damaging things I hear students say is, this professor wants this thing. Right. What do you want? I hate that. What do you want? What do you want? What do you right. want? And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, all of us, in trying to explain things to students, put it in our language. Mm-hmm. And so there's a good reason why we sound as if we're saying we want different things. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the conversations I've had with the students about, well, this professor wants IRAC and this professor doesn't want IRAC. And you say, when they get later on and, you know, second and third years, and they get a little more sophisticated about it, most students understand this. But you ask beginning students what that means, and they literally don't understand that those two professors are going to give the same good paper and A. Exactly. They don't get that the professor who says IRAC is saying use a methodological approach to sort of explain how rules apply to facts to respond to this problem. The professor who says I don't want IRAC is saying don't let formulas substitute for thinking. Right. But that both of them are looking for something similar. So first of all, when the students are asking what does the professor want, they're getting hung up on probably stuff that is misleading them despite our very best efforts to be helpful Mm -hmm. because we're not all helpful in the same ways. But secondly, I think that students believe that the differences that they say, remember they only have one experience of contracts, one experience of torts, one experience of criminal law, one experience of con law, one experience of civil procedure. So they only got one of each of us. Right. Right? So I think that they they come to believe that whatever differences that they're experiencing in their class are due solely to the unique idiosyncrasies of their strange professors. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, we're strange well, people. Yeah. I mean, this, <laughs> and idiosyncratic, yes. You know, and we're idiosyncratic people. But what that does is it means that they don't see where there are genuine doctrinal differences. Mm-hmm. And if they did, they would they should begin reviewing and studying the material differently. Differences between the courses. Differences not between be- the professors. No, between but the between the courses yeah. and the material themselves. Right. For example, do you not feel like in, if we're honest in our heart of hearts, we could teach the basic rules of negligence to a bright eighth grader in about an afternoon? Absolutely. Anything you need to learn, you can pull it up on Google. Yeah. The actual, you know. So why do we spend an entire semester? It used to be an entire year, but more often now it's right. an entire semester teaching students torts. And why is it that virtually every person in a torts class ends up feeling like their professor is a a theory-headed philosophy major, right? right? And it's because we're using the torts class to look at the limitations of law and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that, since almost every torts problem doesn't have a clear answer, uh, that underlying policy of why do we do this or what incentives are we creating Mm -hmm. when we create certain rules and how will that create, uh, how will that push people toward better and safer behavior rather than worse and less safe behavior. If you don't get that, you don't understand what torts is about. Torts is a subject. Because, you know, the rules of battery are only so hard. Right. You're right. And so, you know, that's what I try to tell my students, too, is that there's no book out there that says, oh, 
woman going down an unlit subway doesn't hold the handle. Oh, that must be yeah. that must be negligence on the yeah. part of the um, MTA. Right. It doesn't work that way. Right, it doesn't. It's just not how it's structured. So, so torts tends to be a very theoretical class, mm-hmm. and students often, once you start getting into the kind of theoretical parts of it, you look up in a torts class and you see that's when they've stopped taking notes. Huh. Because it feels like, well, what am I supposed to do with this information? And, they, you know, I understand that because they don't know what to do with the information. And maybe they don't need to be taking notes on every word of it, but they do need to be thinking. And if they don't get that part of what Torts is doing is asking us to ask big questions about law and human experience and human behavior, then they're not well prepared to deal with Torts problems. Right, and that's, I mean, that's the thing about torts that you hit the nail on the head, and I feel like I'm starting to sound, give out all my little sound bites, but the reality is that we're teaching them, what I say to my students is you're not going to get a client who fell down the subway stairs, but what you're going to get is a client, and you need to understand how to argue on behalf of that client to the best of your ability in a way that's different than non-lawyers, because they're bound by the judicial system, which requires us to do rule-based reasoning. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's what they've got to be able to grapple with in torts. Right. It's not a coincidence that people experience their torts professors commonly as very conceptual, very theoretical, very philosophical. Mm -hmm. It's not a coincidence that contracts is one giant flowchart. You have to handle every contracts question by going through the basics. The, you know, is there a contract formed? Was it breached to go point by point by point? And it may be that there's no question that there's a contract formed. There was a valid binding agreement that had sufficiently certain terms that was signed and endorsed by both parties and that no one is challenging. Right. Fine. We no longer need to ask that question. It's a whole category of things we don't need to, to look at. Um, but assuming that it's there and it's written and it has consideration and nobody's challenging it, we can now move on to the next thing. But theoretically, we still have to go through that question. So contracts works like a flowchart. Mm-hmm. Torts doesn't. Mm-hmm. Criminal law is all about figuring out what charges you can bring, because right. that's everything starts from what the prosecutor charges. Mm-hmm. So what charges can you bring? What are the highest charges that you can sustain? Are those the right ones and the fair ones? Are there lesser included offenses that, that you should also consider? Are some of those more just? Mm-hmm. Now, let's find the rule and use the exact language of whatever code we've studied right. and figure out how it applies to these facts. Which means if I'm doing an outline for my contracts class, I'm sorry, for my criminal law class, I'm going to group it by starting with that language and then figuring out where do the facts get tricky? Where do the facts push me from one level of manslaughter into another mm-hmm. level of manslaughter, mm-hmm. and why? Now I can bring in the big think concepts of mens rea and you know right. uh, theories of punishment and add that to it. And so that's going to look really different from my neat little flowchart or complicated flowchart. Right. And the more I understand that, the better I understand the material. And if I, you know, so if I approach studying it, but with a, a genuine conception of what the subject is. Then I can start to look and say, well, what is my professor saying? Not just because she's a little bit weird, mm-hmm. but because she's trying to say something specific about this class. Right. I mean, don't, haven't we all had the experience of students who take our first-year classes and then our upper-level classes and find us different? Yes. And they're sort of shocked by that? Yes. And they don't get that, well, maybe there's a little difference in the way you deal with first-year students versus upper-level students. They're a little closer to being colleagues as upper-level students. Mm-hmm. But there's also just the fact that you're teaching a different subject. Of course it's different. Right. So right. you're different. Right. And students, the more we can let students know that, 
the better they can be about thinking about what to do and how to, how to deal with what they're learning in their classes. Yeah, it's not just learning the law as a vehicle. It's learning the law in relation to all the different disciplines. Absolutely. And understanding... And also understanding how those disciplines relate to each other. Yeah. Right? I mean, I mean con, like the, con law, first yeah. of all, overlays a little bit of everything because every discipline has its constitutional um, kind of interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may come up. Um, and I think constitutional law is the one area, like I said, when I refer to constitutional law exceptionalism, I think it's because it is very different from the other first-year subjects. Yeah. Every single case matters for its own sake because the Supreme Court announced it and your con law teacher decided to teach it. Right, right. And, and, but, but also, it's binding, yeah. right? And that's what we're teaching them, too, is the idea of the limits of precedent. Absolutely. The importance of precedent. Absolutely. That, um, all right, so, so I understand exactly what you're saying and this idea that, I mean, the, the most important point that you've communicated to me is that students need to understand what we're teaching them and that we're not just teaching them to learn cases. We're teaching them to use cases. Yeah. Right? Well, cases and rules. I mean, not every... And rules and statutes. Yeah, I mean, because some classes have, have yes. many more... Sta- I mean, yes. that's, that's a you're big right. difference right. for people who teach criminal law, for yes. example, mm-hmm. where the code that they're using, and some people use the model penal code, right. and some people use the state criminal law, and mm-hmm. a, a few people use the federal criminal uh, code, okay. I think. Or sometimes they'll do a comparative work with all of them. That's the one first-year class, I think, where the code is probably more important than the cases. Right. I mean, that'll be true for some upper-level classes, yes. like if they take a class in sales where they use the UCC or in tax where obviously they're learning the tax code. Right. You know, there I think it's important to understand the cases are just there to help you understand probably right. what what we think of the code or what places where the codes have been interpreted. Right, right. And, and there are examples of how they, you interpret the code. Yeah. So, so parting words, if you have a student who's coming to you, it's a week before finals, they have done what they thought they were supposed to do but it wasn't what you know they were supposed to do, what would you say to them? A week before finals? Boy, I'd like to have gotten them earlier. (laughs) All right, let's let's change that. How about that they're they're a month into school. You you have a student a month into school. The student, you notice, is memorizing the cases and the thing I hate, pulling them up off the Internet because they think that that's all you need to know from the case. And you notice this. What would you say to that student? Um... Hey, let's look at your library or whatever resource you have that shows um, some sample exams. And l- let's take a look at one of those questions and figure out what you're going to need to do. Okay. Now, how is this going to help you? Um, in fact, sometimes when I teach, I haven't taught outlining in a long time, but in classes when I do, I usually start, my school has a, a policy of um, all required courses have closed book exams. I, I start by saying, what if you could cheat? And why do you say that? Because the question is, when you're putting together what you're calling an outline, right? if you could have it in front of you, is it going to answer the question better? If it's not going to answer the question better, why is it there? That's interesting. You're right. That's why because I don't like we need, exams. we need to reverse design what we're putting together at the end of the semester. Yeah. I mean, bottom line, the students need to sort through an enormous amount of for, for a typical torts class, they might read 200 cases, yeah. right? Plus squibs, if, yeah. if your casebook has some, like, squib, which obviously we're not like no going in in detail, but yeah. yeah. So they're dealing with a lot of pieces of those. At the end, though, what they need to know are the elements of all of the torts. Mm-hmm. They need to know 
let's think about both the cases and the hypotheticals and what they taught us about how you apply these. Where can the facts get tricky? Because that's what my professor is going to test me on. Hey, did I learn a majority and a minority rule or a place where the rule changed between the 19th and the 20th century? Why? Right. Because it's telling me something important about the law. Mm-hmm. I bet I'm gonna, I can find a way to use that on my torts exam. So I would start with the torts and the elements, and I would add in sort of complications of facts from either cases or hypotheticals and questions about that. And then I would go with um, speculation about if the teacher is out to mess with my head, <laughs> which because we're horrible people, we probably are, okay. how are they going to make this as complicated as possible? What kinds of facts make me do the hardest work? Because that's what's going to be on the exam. How can I prepare myself to find it? Wow. And if I don't have all that in front of me, I'm not ready. Or at least I'm not as ready as I can be. Mm-hmm. And everything else, all of the flashcards about this and that, that is making myself feel better without actually producing what I need, to, which is preparing myself to do this test, not the test I imagine I'm taking. And that is exactly right. And a perfect way we'll end our conversation. But... It's it, Those flashcards, they make you feel better. They don't help you answer a law school exam that's written to test your ability to apply a lot of fact, yeah. not your ability to learn the right. law. Flashcards, I, I don't want to poo-poo flashcards entirely. The one place I think flashcards are incredibly useful is for bar review okay. because there's so many more rules to learn right. at that time, and you're learning a lot of them sometimes in, um, in subject matter you haven't studied or taken, and you should be mixing it up all the time, which is why you know having the ability to shuffle your index cards and go through yeah. it has some real merit. But tell me you're going to finish a, a torts class and not know the rules of negligence. You've got bigger problems. Right, it's true. It's true. I, I, I'm not adverse to commercial outlines as long as you know their place. So you're yeah. absolutely right. So thank you so, so much. This has been really wonderful. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. So that's my discussion with Professor Chris Franklin. Hope you enjoyed it. If you like these podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes. If you're interested in me speaking with a particular professor or on a particular topic, tweet me at Effect with your suggestions. And thank you again to www.bensound for the music. Enjoy your day.